quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. All right, here we are. We are less than 48 hours from what could be the final public hearing of the January 6th committee. And yes, we are already nine hearings in, and yes, 20 months away from January 6th, but we are still finding out new information as of tonight. And the information is raising even more questions, interestingly enough, the questions about the Trump White House's involvement in the attempt to overthrow our democracy. That's really what the whole thing is about, the heart of what the committee has been trying to get to the bottom of, according to what they have said time and time again for about nine hearings and for more than a year. So will we see anything new or will this just be a kind of summation? Well, we've been told to expect new footage we haven't yet seen before and new witness testimony, according to the committee's chairman. And remember those missing Secret Service text messages? Well, apparently we're going to hear more about those and the agents who've allegedly been uncooperative with the panel. There were Secret Service agents who um, were playing a hugely important and very courageous role. Um, and I think that there are some who, um, you know, have, have not been forthcoming with the committee, and, and you'll hear more about that. Well, lest you forgot about this man, longtime Trump ally Roger Stone will make an appearance. No, it's not going to be in person. But he'll be featured in a new documentary video about his alleged contacts with extremist groups. Now, CNN has obtained some of that footage from a Danish documentary crew traveling with Stone on the day before the 2020 election. Now, this is Stone apparently coming home from a rally in Georgia. The voting, let's get right let's get to right the to violence. Let's get right to it. Shoot to kill. F the voting. Let's get right to the violence. Hmm, more on that to come. Now, as for the new questions I mentioned just a moment ago, well, why was Donald Trump's former right-hand man, Mark Meadows, texting with a conspiracy theorist who helped drum up a wild plan for our military, the military, to illegally seize voting machines in the days before January 6th? Retired Army Colonel Phil Waldron was behind plots to access voting machines in key swing states. Now, CNN has a text exchange between Waldron and the former White House chief of staff on December 23rd. Waldron was griping that a judge in Arizona dismissed a lawsuit to give his team access to voting machines in the state, to which Meadows responded, quote, pathetic. Now, I'm not going to try to overstate this text message or try to parse the word pathetic and try to find something illegal to talk about. Well, I don't know if it's legal or not at this point from what we know. But what that does show us is that someone actively trying to overthrow the 2020 election had a direct line to the chief of staff for the president of the United States. And speaking of lines, well, who is it that made a nine second phone call to a rioter during the attack 
on our Capitol. And it came from the White House. And even maybe more curiously here, why was the call made? We don't yet know, but we do know who it was placed to. That cell phone belonged to a 26-year-old Trump supporter from Brooklyn, New York, named Anton Lunick. He pled guilty to charges connected to the storming of the Capitol. Now, this here is Lunick seen entering the building. And I guess the call was placed, this is important, it was placed at 4.34 p.m. on January 6th from a White House landline. This according record obtained by CNN. Now, to put that time slide in context as to why it's important, this was a call that was placed after Trump told rioters to go home at 4.17 p.m. So go home. We love you. You're very special. Lunick claims he doesn't remember getting that call and, and didn't know anyone in the White House. But a former Republican congressman who first disclosed the call isn't buying it. Denver Riggleman worked as a technical advisor for the January 6th committee. I really don't count anybody who says, well, I don't know anybody in the White House and I don't remember the call. Why don't we go to the originator? And I know that the committee has tried to do that because those White House extensions are very important. And, you know, for me as a data guy, I really don't pay attention to what somebody's saying when the data is telling me something else. So what exactly is it saying and what will be said about all of this come this Wednesday? Let's talk about it right now with my table here. Joining me now is senior political commentator David Swerdlick, CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, a former federal prosecutor, and Doug High, former RNC communications director. Glad to have all of you here. First of all, I mean, it's been a couple months now that we've heard from this committee. Everyone's wondering what they're going to talk about. We are very close now to the midterm elections. I'm wondering just from your gut reaction, will this make any difference to voters? Yeah, Laura, I think it will make a difference. The committee did a lot of work over the summer cementing this idea in people's minds. And this is one last reminder as we head toward the end of this Congress. And of course, we're obviously just a few weeks out from Election Day. I don't think we're going to learn anything that's going to blow anyone's mind or change anyone's mind. Americans now know what they think. It's about this committee being able to document what they have found and about them being able to say, look, we've done our work. It's up to you now, voters. It's up to you now, Justice Department. It's up to you now, judicial system, to do what you will. Um, Congress has oversight authority, but they don't prosecute. They can't prosecute. Right. But the same token, I mean, Roger Stone is equal parts a blast from the past in prior discussions, and now Evergreen in terms of the lead up to January 6th. Well, that, I mean, the fact that he's involved in documentary footage around that, is that going to tip the scale in any direction? I don't think it tips the scale in any direction. Now, based on what we know right now, look, you have communication lines between Roger Stone and some of the folks at the Capitol building and communication lines between Roger Stone and people in the White House. What you don't have is the connection between all three. And I think for charging people with crimes, you need to establish that uh, explicit connection. Now, look, it's just bad for Roger Stone. That clip you played at the beginning, Laura, of what was it? F the whatever. Let's just start shooting. I, you know, I, I don't even want to repeat it, but it's certainly bad and disgraceful conduct. Like, does it change anything? Who knows? But at the end of the day, they're, they're putting together a report at the end of this for the American people. It'll lay out the charges, lay out what uh, the allegations, rather. Um, and we, we shall see. As they say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> if you didn't like that, let me play another clip we have from that documentary footage that's been obtained. And by the way, 
If you're keeping tabs on how many documentary videos were conducted or filmed through the course of this, I missed like number three or four, right? Well, here it is. Let's just hope we're celebrating. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it'll still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. F*** you. Mm. Now, let me just say, he has responded to this footage coming out, and I want to read it for everyone here. And he says, quote, I challenge the accuracy and the authenticity of these videos and believe that they have been manipulated and selectively edited. I also point out that filmmakers do not have the legal right to use them. How ironic that Kim Kardashian and I are both subjected to computer-manipulated videos on the same day. The excerpts you provided below prove nothing. Totally do not prove that I had anything to do with the events of January 6th. That being said, it clearly shows I advocated for lawful congressional and judicial options. Doug, I, I too speak English, <laughs> and I heard what was said in parts about the idea of possession nine-tenths of the law, claim victory. That really was the blueprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look, he, he needs a good press secretary communications director. If you just look at that statement, on the one hand, he says, this is all fake popular word in the Trump administration, and then says, but it clearly shows I didn't do anything. Mm. So you know, the, the A and the B don't equal C here. And this is the problem I think a lot of the real Trump acolytes have is because facts don't matter at all, say whatever you want to say, your base will go along. It's the rest of the voters, a lot of whom have made up their minds negative on Trump, that have to make a decision. But here's where I'll slightly disagree with David here. I don't think that voters who haven't made up their mind yet are going to make up their mind on this. But if you're a campaign you don't want to be talking about this. If you're a Republican campaign, at least, you want to be talking about inflation, crime, and the border. You don't want to be talking about abortion, which is a whole other topic, and Donald Trump on anything. And this is going to make them respond to Donald Trump yet again. Isn't the way, though, to sort of put an end to the point of January 6th and what happened in the election denialism to stop denying the elections? I mean, there's a kind of easy way for Republicans who are overwhelmingly, and you're, you're talking about this notion, saying that, Couldn't they simply do away with the constant talk about Trump by not supporting? Everyone's like, no, Laura, no, Laura, no, Laura. Here you go. At this point, it's almost partly about not wanting to admit you're wrong, right? There There are plenty of Republicans who are hardcore Trump supporters. There are plenty of Republicans who still are bitter over the 2020 election. There are others who may still vote Republican, to your mm-hmm. point, but in their minds, they know this was an attempt to overturn the results of a free and fair election. And people have a hard time admitting that they got buffaloed by President Trump and the President mm-hmm. Trump show. I think you're just thinking like a lawyer, which is that if I... Ex- <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. If you just explain... Does that mean logically and explain logically something and, and just persuade and, and you know Based on facts oh. and reality? No, you're right. But, I don't know why no, I thought to think about facts. You, That's fine. No, but, but literally, if you simply explain that you are correct, people will eventually understand it. I think we're in the post-explaining mm. your correct phase in American politics right now, and that's part of what's the disconnect between the two of you on that. I but it is true, though. I mean, if you are a Republican who would like to reclaim the majority in Congress, the last thing you want to be doing is talking about the past. There's that infamous saying about, if you're talking about the past, you're already losing. Of course, you can have the exception being the infamous line of, are you better off today yeah. than you were in the past? That's more of a forward-thinking notion. Why is this idea of, um, of not, why is there not the universal approach to focusing on the future? Is it the fact that this committee is still happening or other factors continuing to bog it down? 
So I think everybody here has seen the Mel Brooks movie, Blazing Saddles. There's a great scene where Cleavon Little pulls a gun on himself. And he says, if anybody moves, then he's going to shoot himself. This is what the Republican Party has done to itself through Donald Trump. And so if you're a Republican, you want Trump support. What does that mean? Well, in North Carolina last weekend, Ted Budd, the Senate candidate, had a rally with Donald Trump. Donald Trump spent about 30 seconds saying Ted Budd's a good guy. Sherrod Beasley, the Democratic opponent, is a bad candidate. The rest of it was the Donald Trump's grievance show. And that's what, you, that's what you sign on for. And if you back Donald Trump, you got to back him every step of the way. The next line, of course, is he's just crazy enough to do it. I have to say, and thank you for the censorship of that particular line. Um, is he right in the idea of that this is a, a, a new way of thinking about a self-inflicted wound for the Republican Party or Donald Trump? Because he hasn't yet to declare, and he has the track record of having his endorsements do very, very well so far. And the talking point about Democrats only focusing on a way to get Trump down. Does a cat really have your time? Okay. No. The two Just, most opinionated men I know. Well, three. Look, well, look, there's a couple of things going on here. Republicans are playing catch up. Democrats had a dismal 2021, or at least the Biden-Harris administration had a dismal 2021. Now Republicans see that Democrats have a story to tell. And now they're having to come up with a message other than we back Trump, other than Joe Biden is failing, and they may still take Congress. Look, it's a tough road to hoe for Democrats. But, Laura, I do think now they are caught without an affirmative agenda that really resonates with voters. And that, I think, is going to be what, where the rubber hits the road in a few weeks. And that's what Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans tried to do last week outside of Pittsburgh, is say, we have an agenda we want to run on. And that agenda isn't Donald Trump. That's the problem for them, is they always have to answer questions about all things Trump, and Trump makes sure of it for them. Well, now the question they have to ask after the commitment discussion was, why don't you have more information like Newt Gingrich's 1994 contract with America plan? But we'll, a separate we'll, issue. Oh, separate <laughs> issue, but along the same lines, more in a moment, everyone stick around. And by the way, wait, there's more with Don Lemon tonight. He'll have more coverage on that documentary. So stick around to hear that as well. And ahead, the scandal involving football legend Brett Favre. Well, I'm a Vikings fan, so it's hard for me to have said a Packers legend Brett Favre. But legend Brett Favre, new text messages have surfaced in the civil lawsuit alleging his involvement in a massive welfare scheme. What they reveal and could mean for the Hall of Fame quarterback is next. Well, there are new questions tonight about Pro Football Hall of Famer Brett Favre's involvement in a massive fraud scheme down in Mississippi. We're talking millions of dollars of welfare funds that were intended to needy families, but they were given to, well, other projects. Newly released text messages from 2019 show Favre repeatedly pressing then-Governor Phil Bryant about funding a volleyball facility at the university where his daughter happened to be playing even after he was told that it was potentially illegal to go down this route. Now, on July 28, 2019, the then-governor texted Favre, quote, use of these funds is tightly controlled. Any improper use could result in violation of federal law. Auditors are currently reviewing the use of these funds by families first. Now, less than two months later, after an in-person meeting, Favre texted Bryant the following, quote, thanks for having us. We obviously need your help big time, and time is working against us. And we feel that your name is the perfect choice for this facility, and we are not taking no for an answer. 
You are a Southern Miss alumni, and folks need to know you are also a supporter of the university. Now, Bryant then responded, we're going to get there. This was a great meeting, but we have to follow the law. I am too old for federal prison. Smiley face emoji. Now, Bryant is not named in the civil lawsuit and has not, has not been criminally charged. Favre, on the other hand, is named in the civil suit. His attorney says he did not know that welfare funds were being used for the volleyball center and insists that his fundraising efforts for the facility were entirely honorable. Our guests are back with me now to discuss. And first of all, if any of you says Favre, I know you don't watch football. His name is Brett Favre. We're going to get that right. First of all, I'm going to start with you here. These text messages, and by the way, there's a a trend here today of text messages, right? The fact that you have a text message or something in a civil suit in general, is that hot water? It's absolutely hot water. Look, texts don't lie. Um, And they, there's a reason why in the law, um, statements that are made in the moment are given more weight, right? You don't have time to mull them or or, or get your story straight. It's what you're saying to someone at that time in that moment. Um, And this was a conversation that they thought wasn't being monitored, wouldn't get out to anyone. Um, And it just doesn't look good, if nothing else. You know, I would say you ought to get yourself... Uh, a criminal defense attorney, wink emoji, because of the fact that, I mean, you're kind of in trouble here. Now, look, um, it remains to be seen whether it goes far enough to, uh, for him to face criminal exposure. But again, it just looks really bad when somebody is saying to you, I- I'm afraid of criminal exposure uh, and, I- and I don't want to go to prison. You know, there's a thing that you could probably get, there's the, you know, benefit of the doubt. Yeah. The idea that it can be lost in translation. You know, how often have the message, it just not, it doesn't come across the same way. But then you've got this message from Brett Favre, where he was asking this particular next thing. I'm going to put it on the screen for you here. It's um, Brett Favre says, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? No, we never had that information publicized. Talking about, I understand you being uneasy about that, though. Let's see what happens on Monday with the conversation with some of the folks about at Southern. Maybe we'll click with them, hopefully. Okay, thanks. There's obviously a knowledge of why not to have the receipts in play here. But, you know, forget that it's Brett Favre. Forget that it's about the idea of a volleyball center. Are we not all old enough to remember outrage about the misappropriation of funds? The idea of the allegation of money meant for the most needy. Why is there not a bigger outcry? And why is this story never getting the the reaction? Laura, I don't think you can forget that it's about Brett Favre. Look, everybody everybody gets their day in court, civil or criminal. This is a lot of trouble over someone with one Super Bowl ring, right? Wow. 2010. He was fined $50,000 by the NFL for not cooperating with a sexting investigation. Last year, he had to give back $600,000 in another thing related to Mississippi State funds. He wasn't charged with anything. Now we come to this. We don't know all the facts yet. He will get his day in court. But it, it, it speaks to me of someone who believes his own legend way wow. too much and thinks he can walk on water. When you see those texts and you see the governor of the state saying essentially, hey, I don't want, I don't want to go to prison over this, yeah. y- you have to believe that Favre thought he and, was in prison. I, I also think what doesn't help Brett Favre is that two people that he has been associated with have uh, convictions already in connection with the case. Now, look, um, the whole point of conspiracies is when the guys around you have been convicted or something, 
of something, it doesn't look good for you, and it further strengthens a, a possible case mm. against him. It's just not good, like on, on many levels. But I don't know who hurt you, Swerve. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, to say I thought I was the Vikings, know, you are like the cheeseheads. Well, let me ask you a question, Doug. No you are a communication strategist. Yeah. <laughs> what advice would you give if this were your client? Yeah, look, th- there's another court, and it's the court of public opinion. Right, right. And as David highlighted. Brett Favre doesn't have a, a God, I said it correctly, thank God. Of course, um, uh, we were he doesn't have a great Favre. track record um, <laughs> when it comes to cooperating with, with probes. He needs mm-hmm. to with, get a smart team around him, aside from the legal team, to determine what's true, what's not true, what he's able to say, and what he's not able to say. He hasn't talked yet. At some point, he's going to have to on this. This isn't just an NFL investigation. We're talking about criminal statutes now. He's going to have to get a story and, and stick to it, and hopefully if not win in the courtroom, win some kind of public opinion court. You know, I think about this in in a greater context. If you put it in the big umbrella of sort of allegations of fraud, just last week there were conversations involving COVID-19 funds misappropriated. This is not what Brett Favre is accused of having done at all. And again, there are not criminal charges against him. These are civil allegations at the very least, Um, which is no less serious, by the way, for other reasons. But when you talk about the idea of what happened with COVID-19, what happened with the funding that's there? The big DOJ probe. You were formerly with DOJ, Deputy mm-hmm. Attorney General. When you see matters like this, what do you think the political reaction yeah. is? No, it's a couple things, Laura. Yeah, there's a few things going on. Number one, it's a lot of money in one place. Number two, you have desperate people and desperate victims, and it's actually kind of easy to cover your tracks, or, or so people think. Mm-hmm. And it creates this perfect storm of this of a place where people think they can defraud others. It's um, it, look, it's sickening. But would, why? Why is it, it so easy to cover? Why do you think? It's so I, well, easy people to think it's track? easy. People think it's easy because of the amount of money um, and the and the complexity of these programs. Look, it's really hard to administer a government program or a welfare program because you have a lot of different recipients, you have a lot of different criteria, and people think they can just slip through the cracks. And, and get there. It's sort of, it's the most sickening because you're preying on the vulnerable and their ability to get, to, to recover. This, this was a concern when, when we went through round one, round two, round three of, of funding was we were throwing money at a problem that we hadn't figured out how to solve yet. Mm-hmm. And these were the right decisions to make, the right votes for Congress to make. But given the massive sums of this, it was, it was pretty easy to see that there would be a lot of fraud. Right, yeah. It was, the, it was in 2020 when this started happening. Mm-hmm. And what struck me about this story, and I know it's near and dear to your heart because you're it's in Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> right. Look, 2020 was the height of the pandemic. People were struggling. As you said, people needed this money. And some people said, good, let's have this money. Let's let the government turn on the faucet. And other people were saying, good, the government <laughs> is turning on the faucet. Mm-hmm. It really is uh, despicable. And politicians, in some respect, were thinking good for another reason, because they were having a talking point about the inability to track the money, the inability to make sure that everyone who said they needed it was using it for the right purposes. So in all, all around, you've got the talking point of, was it a good idea? Was it a bad idea? And of course, I wonder who's benefited in there too. We'll see and see with the midterm elections. Elliot, thank you, David and Doug. Stick around. You didn't have enough analogies for movies for me. Sorry. But coming <laughs> up, a life-threatening storm Hurricane Ian is now strengthening and moving closer by the second to Florida. Forecasts are predicting a near worst case scenario for the entire Tampa area. Now, this is what it looks like from space. It is very serious, and all Floridians must heed the warnings. The very latest on Ian's path is next. Well, tonight, Hurricane Ian is gaining strength and barreling towards Florida, where it could deliver the first direct hit on Tampa in 100 years. 
Video shows Tampa residents lining up for hours today for sandbags as meteorologists warn that Ian could literally inundate low-lying areas with rain for days. 300,000 people in coastal areas have already been ordered to evacuate. The head of the Hurricane Center director calls Hurricane Ian a, quote, near worst-case scenario, unquote, for the city. CNN meteorologist Tom Sater joins me now. Tom, give us a closer look at where Ian is right now and, and what did the latest advisory tell us about when the storm might make landfall in Florida? Well, we're about 100 miles now, Laura, from making landfall in the western tip of Cuba. 8 p.m. advisory, the pressure's dropping. So what that means is it's getting stronger. And the winds will start to pick up. And so we're at 100 miles sustained. They're going to get stronger than that. Usually these systems move over a landmass and they break down. We're not expecting that to happen at all. In fact, it's already undergone uh, one a process we call rapid intensification. Decades ago, it used to be one or two a season would happen. Now with climate change and these extreme warm waters, it's almost you know, it's happening all the time. Here is now the uh, hurricane warning for the Tampa area. We're going to see conditions go downhill in the Keys tomorrow morning, southwest Florida by the afternoon, and then up into Tampa tomorrow night into Thursday morning. There's still some variation in some of the models, and this is good. We want to see it off to the west. We want to see this move in what could be a disaster. This does not have to make landfall to be one of the worst-case scenarios uh, ever for the Tampa area. If it hangs offshore and sits for a while, it's going to be really bad. Look, it goes up to Category 4 already. So that interaction with land means nothing. Another rapid intensification process keeps it as a 4. That's a lot of water, uh, in a, again, as a major hurricane carrying all that water upwelling underneath it. Even though we're still at a three, notice how close these are, Laura. So again, the system's going to slow down. It doesn't have to make landfall. This could be the worst thing that they've seen since 1921. I mean, even if it doesn't make landfall, it will have that possible effect. I mean, the idea here, I think I was reading that there could be a chance where Ian could slow down and sit on Pinellas County for 47 hours, 47 hours. What would that mean for a potential uh, storm surge and, of course, flooding? Well, we've got the storm surge warnings in effect from north of Tampa all the way southward. But as the system gets closer to the coastline, that storm surge height is going to get higher and higher. So if it's parked right off Tampa Bay, and we think maybe 25 miles, the closest that Tampa has, has been brushed by a major hurricane since 1950. And if it sits there, and the models were showing this, they're now in agreement. We do not, well, we want them to agree so we can get a handle on a track. We just don't want them to agree in this case. Because if this slows down, which we thought maybe five miles per hour, then maybe now it looks like two to three for two days, this duration. National Weather Service out of Tampa has a wind forecast, and it calls for winds to be tropical storm force into St. Pete for 47 hours. That means that wall of waters is going to continue to just push into the region, push into the region further and further inland. We're not talking about just a row or two of homes. We're talking a mile or two inward. And then it impedes the water from releasing back into the Gulf. So it acts as a dam. And as this stall process continues, now you've got 10, 15, 20 inches of rain on top. That's just going to make the flooding situation worse. So, I mean, it's shocking to hear about this and think about this is even without landfall, let alone sitting over 47 hours. What can you tell Floridians to be doing right now? I mean, is there any way to prepare short of evacuation? And even so, where do you go? How far away can you go to be safe? 
Well, I, I tell you, they're doing the right thing right now by kind of staggering the evacuation zone. So they don't want to just clog the roads all at one time. But you can see the inundation process. Really, if you're in this region, all you have to do is head east and maybe south, head over to the other coastline, uh, because the system's going to be moving north of here, and that's when they're going to have a bunch of rainfall. So flooding inland is going to be a big deal as well. I mean, if you look at even at Port Charlotte here, you know, the Charlotte Harbor, this is Peace River. That is several miles inland. So first have your alerts ready, get your information, know your zone, know your evacuation routes, get ready for uh, just a crazy couple of days. What we need to see here is just a 25 to 30 mile shift to the west, and that'll alleviate a lot of the problems. Still could happen. We've seen changes in the past. Let's hope for this one as well. Let's hope so. Thank you so much, Tom Sater. Unbelievable. Yeah. Coming up, the economy isn't the only challenge that Democrats are facing with the midterms just, what, six weeks away now? Will crime concerns help Republicans win back Congress? Plus, she could be the next mayor of L.A., and she's also a recent crime victim herself. But now she's facing a lot of scrutiny from her own rival after guns from her home were stolen. Are there legitimate questions or something more dubious going on? We'll ask next. Six weeks out from the midterms, and Republicans are betting crime will be a winning issue. A new Washington Post-ABC News poll shows that behind the economy, schools, and inflation, crime has surpassed abortion as a highly important matter among voters. 56% of voters say the Republicans would do a better job handling crime compared to 34% for Democrats. And Republicans also lead voter trust in those other two top issues, the inflation and the economy. Republicans taking note and tried to change tactics in a way in recent weeks. According to the data firm Ad Impact, Republican candidates and allies aired about 53,000 commercials on crime during the first three weeks of September alone. That's up from the 29,000 crime ads they aired in all of August. The question is, will it work? David Swerlick and Doug Heyer here. And also Maria Cardona is here to add to our conversation. I love that you're here as well. So I want to ask you, first of all, when you think about the GOP and the crime issue, we know that being soft on crime is often a talking point people will say. Mm -hmm. But the idea of the numbers, increase in violent crime, increase in crime overall, combined with the issues surrounding law enforcement, defund the police, the idea of mistrust, leading into the crime issue, can this work for Republicans? It can. I think Democrats can avoid the shellacking that President Obama and Democrats took in 2010, but it's still going to be hard for them to hold on to Congress. Uh, Pew Research found similar results as what the Washington Post poll that you just showed found. Abortion is a driver of turnout for Democrats. It animates the Democratic base, but it's not the number one issue that people rank when they're polled about what they're concerned about heading into voting. And we're just a few weeks away. Why are you laughing? Because here's the problem. <laughs> People didn't think abortion was going to be an issue in New York 18. People didn't think that this was going to be a big issue in the Kansas referendum. And it overwhelmingly was, Laura. The problem with these polls is that 
The abortion issue has completely energized and mobilized young women, new voters, Latina women. There are two polls out, Laura, where it showed that abortion is the number two issue for Latino voters. That is astounding on the side of keeping abortion legal. So what you're seeing is that, and as we all know, when you poll registered voters or even likely voters, if you haven't voted in the last three elections, you're not going to get polled most likely. So those numbers are not showing up. I guarantee you that there will be a flood of women coming to the polls in November. Whether or not it surpasses crime, I don't know, but I guarantee you it will continue to be a driving issue because you know, Laura, an election hath no fury like millions of women scorned. Mm, a good point. Also, though, it's interse- I mean, kind of intersectional, is it not? We're talking about crime and or the discussion surrounding abortion the issue surrounding the Dobbs decision is the criminalization mm-hmm. of abortion. And so in some respects, I wonder if they're parsing out for the polling purposes the two distinctions in a certain way. But I ask you about this. I mean, Doug, I want to hear your opinion because Karen Bass, member of Congress, who's now running for mayor, as we all know, her opponents have criticized her ever since she was the victim of a crime, a burglary in her home, guns were stolen from her home. It's turned into a conversation instead about whether she had secured them properly. She says that she does. But the idea, well, now there might be, well, you know what? Let me listen to what she said during the debate to address this very issue where she herself was blamed. My home was burglarized. I called the police and later they arrested two suspects. And the storage and registration were 100% legal. You call on me to prove one thing or another, and then the councilman calls on me to be investigated? What I said about your burglary is that I feel sorry for anybody, including you, for that to happen to. But I would also say this. There are two guns on the street now, and we have terrible gun violence in the city of Los Angeles. And that's a shame. And I know that pains you, but knowing how those are stored, it's a simple thing to answer. What strikes me about this, Doug, first of all, you've got this idea of what people often find to be incongruous, somebody who can be pro-gun control. I mean, she's got an F rating from the NRA. This Mm -hmm. is not somebody who I think the NRA (laughs) wants to be as a poster child. But the idea of gun ownership and sensible gun control, these seem to be a kind of a long-winded oxymoron in political speak. Do you think this is a successful strategy to try to point out somehow there is some inconsistency between being a gun owner and also linking it to crime? This is not only the most bizarre happening I've ever seen in a campaign, potentially, it's also bizarre messaging. And there are so many things that you can run on and be successful on. Abortion, if you're a Democrat, certainly Democrats are talking about that. Crime, obviously. Uh, Inflation, the border, a whole host of things. This is a very bizarre issue to stake your claim on as a candidate and think that you're going to get real traction. And it's not what voters in Los Angeles want to hear about. I was just going to say, people should remember on a national audience, even though Congresswoman Bass doesn't have that huge profile, in California, she's very familiar to people. She was the Speaker of the California Assembly. She was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She's been around L.A. politics a long time. Caruso is behind, and so he's trying to attack her however he can. You know what is really just underscores the bizarreness of it. And frankly, what to me is just outright racism and misogyny is that what you said, Laura, at the beginning about this being in Congress, I think actually, if you're a white man, how many members of Congress, Democratic white male members of Congress who have guns are out there talking about how they own guns and they are the ones that are proposing 
gun safety measures. It gives them credibility. Like President Biden? Well, exactly. uh, Exactly. And then everyone that lives in the West, Manchin and, you know, a couple of other, the the senator from Montana. um, And, but a black woman can't do it. And it's completely the opposite. And she is seen as somehow what they're trying to paint her as, and let's just say things as they are, as dangerous and bizarre. And they want to inject fear. And to me, it is just the outright use of fear mongering. It is an old Republican tactic. I don't think it's going to work. Clearly, like you said, she's running away with it. And this is complete desperation on her opponents. Well, you know who agrees with you? Karen Bass. And, and, and she said, she said here, and I quote, she's speaking to um, the LA Times columnist Erica Smith, and she said, it's the whole narrative they're attempting to create that is always created with black elected officials trying to make me untrustworthy. Yeah. yeah, it's gross. Well, we'll see what happens if it's successful or not. I don't know. Either way, I mean, if this is the new horizon and new frontier, well. It's ugly. Thank you, David Swerdlick, Doug High, and Maria Cardona. Thanks. Coming up, everyone, a crash test in outer space. We'll look at tonight's extraordinary NASA mission that could help Earth one day stop an asteroid from slamming into us. That's next. All right. Humanity can sleep a little better tonight. NASA tonight conducted its very first planetary defense test mission by slamming a spacecraft into an asteroid. Now, here is the moment from NASA's mission control. Three, two, one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. The good news, that asteroid system poses no danger to Earth. But NASA is learning what to do should an asteroid threaten us. Here now um, from retired NASA astronaut, great perspective on this issue, Leland Melvin. Leland, I'm so glad that you're here. I see your smile. I know it was a success. We saw the, the cheers. You were actually at NASA's facility when the spacecraft made impact. What was that moment like? Laura, thanks for having me on. It was the most energetic, frenetic, crazy moment, like a Super Bowl moment, where you saw these scientists and engineers being celebrated like they had just won the Super Bowl. And you think about the implications of being able to hit a target 7 million miles from Earth and keep us from doing what happened to the dinosaurs maybe one day if there is a larger asteroid coming to our planet and we being able to mitigate that before it hits us and causes, you know, human uh, tragedy uh, for losing our civilization, kind of like the dinosaurs. And so I think what we've done here is shown that we have the technology and the, and the know-how to defend our planet, planetary protection. And it's just an amazing night. So what was trying to be accomplished? It wasn't the idea of, and I've, of course, I'm going to cite a movie and you as an astronaut will go, really, Laura, this is not Hollywood. But I'm talking about the movie Armageddon. Remember when Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler had the whole thing about trying to blow up an asteroid. That was not this, though. You did not want to blow it up into different pieces. It was trying to nudge it off its course. Is that right? Why the distinction? A kinetic impactor. So the the movie variation was a very large asteroid that was on a collision course with with our planet. But if we can get to the asteroid soon enough, we can push it just enough so that by the time it gets closer to our planet, 
you know, just a small angle far away will make a big angle and, and miss the planet when it gets closer to our, our, our solar system, I mean, our, our planet. And so we don't want to blow it up. We want to push it or maybe we want to drag it away. Maybe have a spacecraft that has a net that can capture it and just move it out of the way. So there are different ways that you can actually, you know, deflect an asteroid. But uh, that option for sending astronauts there, you know, why, why not do it remotely, robotically, so that we don't have to send people seven million miles away and find out ways to do that. There's got to be a lot of risk in something like that. What, what is the risk of a mission like this? Well, there's actually not much of a... It's a robotic mission. There's no human beings on board. So if we can demonstrate that we can do this without sending you know, humans to the asteroid to remove it, like they did in Armageddon and Deep Impact and these other Hollywood movies, which, you know, I, I like those movies. I know you probably like them too, Do you? Right? They were entertaining. <laughs> I wonder. But... I mean, I'm not an astronaut, <laughs> so I can't tell if it's real or not. I'm just cheering along. <laughs> but but if you have the option of sending the hardware versus sending us where we can stay home with our dogs and our kids, you know, I would I would choose that that uh, that second option. And again, we've demonstrated that in this NASA and applied physics lab uh, test tonight for this 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 incredible moment in time. You know, when you think about a test, of course, you wonder, obviously, it's for preparation. It's a, it's a dry run, trying to make sure that you can, if the time comes, do something about it. How concerned should we really be here on Earth that this is an occurrence worthy of such a mission to be tested and executed with such success? Well, we know that an asteroid that's about seven miles in diameter hit the Yucatan Peninsula and created an ice age and fire and brimstone and wiped out the dinosaurs. And so we know this has happened historically. The question is, how many asteroids are out there with that size and can do that kind of damage? And so one of the things we're doing is we're doing a survey as best we can to look at what's out there and see if they're planet killers or if they're actually, yeah. you know, things that can do damage to part of the planet. Right. But there could be something out there really far that's on something called a highly elliptical orbit it's so far away, but it's moving so fast, mm. and it can come into our, our vicinity. But we can still you know, detect that and maybe do something to mitigate that also. So wow. we, we haven't found out that there not, there's nothing out there that can impact us. But maybe one day when we talk about your kids, grandchildren's sure. grandchildren's 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 grandchildren, and Leland, thinking about saving humanity in the... No, no, not grandchildren, grandchildren. <laughs> I'm going to end it here on that. And just if I had the thing, live long and prosper. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. We'll see what happens next. Thank you, Leland Melvin. Thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.